Hello, and welcome to the Rules of Acquisition Remix. I am one-third of the Kickers of Elves, uh, and your host for today, Hugh Crawford. And we have got uh, an interesting episode today. This is the episode uh, called The Rules of Acquisition. It's our namesake episode. So, um, and here we are in the, the second season, and still not out of 1993, <laughs> as we will unpack... Uh, in this episode. So anyway, uh, without further ado, here is the Rules of Acquisition TV show and podcast. If Rococo plot schemes be the food of love, play on I guess. Give me an excess of goofy characterizations that serve fighting it may sicken me and I'll die. Gay panic shenanigans come over my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets. It's time for the Rules of Acquisition. Like, actually, that is the name of the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rules of Acquisition, a podcast where we will be talking about the greatest television show that thought it was doing Shakespeare for some reason in 1994, (laughs) 93. We will be going through every episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And with me, as always, is James Nolan. Hello. And Hugh Crawford. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Rules of Acquisition, and tonight we are talking about the Rules of Acquisition, which is the name (laughs) of this episode. Yes, this is episode seven of season two. It uh, originally aired November 7th, 1993, so we're almost out of 1993 here. And uh, the IMDb description is as follows. A female Ferengi posing as a male to be available to participate in business, a rule strictly forbidden by the Ferengi government, falls for Quark during very important negotiations between the Ferengi and a Gamma Quadrant race. So um, the, ad, the, 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 the description like gives away the reveal? Yes. Yeah. Fuck that description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, come on. Like you, normally when you have a lady playing a dude, it's really obvious. Yeah. But Ferengis have so much makeup on, it's like that's a small little guy, isn't it? It's like, oh, that's a lady. It's like, oh, right. okay. Some people might have been fooled by yeah. that. Uh real quick, um, the IMDB has plot keywords for every episode. And I'm gonna uh-huh. read off uh this week's plot keywords according to IMDB. Okay. Wa- uh, first one is wine, negotiation, game, 24th century, and butt slap. <laughs> <laughs> butt slap is... is a- 24th century butt slap. Yes. So, uh, that's the name of this episode. It should be if we were looking for other names. The but 24th this is our century t- butt slap. <laughs> 24th <laughs> century butt slap. Yeah. But this is our titular episode. Yes. We also get a uh, like we get an avalanche of rules of acquisitions. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've gotten way more than we've gotten in any other episode so far. I, I'm gonna come clean right off the bat, guys. I was not feeling this episode at all. This is probably my third time seeing this episode, and uh-huh. I I'm just thinking that maybe I'm not here for the Ferengi. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you're not alone in this. Like, uh, really, this is, uh, it does not seem to be like on record. Michael Pillar hates this episode. Uh, <laughs> I think Rick Berman hates this episode. And Ivor Stephen Bear is defensive about this episode because he wrote it. Um, <laughs> right, of course he is. Because oh, he's, he's a favorite, he's the yeah. Ferengi guy. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's not my favorite episode either, honestly. Every school school age child knows that Iris Stephen Bear probably could have wrote this episode because he's the Ferengi yeah. guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. You go to any any playground across America, and they all know that. <laughs> yeah, kids love Iris Stephen Bear. <laughs> they love him. And objectivism for some reason, I don't yeah, know. Why. Objectivism. Yeah, yeah. There's more objectivism in this. Um, there, uh, like I was, I was in this episode. For like thirty five minutes, really? Uh, I was. I was, I was out I, at the opening was, scene at at the. You know, what is that game that they're playing? Tongo. Tongo. Is it? Yes. Sorry, James. Is it because we were in a production of Twelfth Night when we were in high school? It may have been. Me and, me and Wade were in a production of Twelfth Night. Is basically this is a function of Twelfth. This is a little. This is Star Trek Twelfth Night. No. Um, what I like. Okay. Okay. Uh, what I like about it, and when I was hooked, I was hooked about it for thirty five minutes, and then it, and then it. And then it lost me. I got off the hook. <laughs> like they took too long to reel me in on this. But the whole like, because it's a it's a third act calamity. This episode. What I like most, or no, nah, I'm not gonna say most. What I like sometimes that's that Star Trek can do is it can show extreme quirks of alien races 
and sort of highlight them by interweaving them through familiar scenario. And so for the for the most of this episode, it's actually like a pretty legitimate like falling in love story between uh it it's it telegraphs that. Yeah, it telegraphs it. It was kind of very demonstrative with trying to be Twelfth Night. Yeah. <laughs> and just kind of like and we're talking in these big kind of... And Twelfth Night's a Shakespeare play where a underling dresses up, a female dresses up like the underling of a, of a duke or something, a male, as they go to execute war. And she becomes so uh, useful to him that he starts bonding with her, small a attracted to her at least, to him, what he thinks is his male steward right. or something. And then, you know, a love story is developing. Right. Total and, homoeroticism and until he realizes yeah. that she's a lady. And then you get a big gay panic scene. <laughs> and then, it, like, yeah. So, like, uh, and this is falls beat for beat for that. Yeah. But what I felt was that I liked watching Quark be vulnerable through his machinations. Because we've often talked about how exhausting being Quark has to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To do all of this kind of stuff. And this show kind of did like the behind the curtains thing because he finally has someone that he can trust. So it's like, he's going and he's like, Oh my God, you're, you're totally right. I'm totally screwed. I'm, you know, you, so you see all of the neurosis and not the slick maneuvering. I was, I I was liking all this. It was ultimately for not like this show sucks balls by the end of it. But, um, it was just a lump of shit. But like for a while there, I was like, where are they going with this? This could be super interesting. You you almost uh, made me start laughing like the Nagus. Like (laughs) (laughs) my dinner with Andre. Um, My dinner with Zach. Does he laugh like that in my dinner with Andre? No. Uh, No, no. I imagine not. I still haven't seen that movie. What's wrong with me? He does say inconceivable. Does he? Yeah. He says inconceivable in. Yeah. Because my dinner with Andre was made like five years before. Six years before Princess Pride. Yeah, no, he says it. Wait, oh, 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 and then I thought you meant he said it and No, this. he says, in, yes, he says inconceivable in my dinner with Andre. Okay, yes. but, okay, well, no, he doesn't say it in the rules of acquisition. He does not, no. Okay, because I would have yeah. remembered that, Yeah, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, I didn't realize that the punk rock uh, Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. is Al from The Naked Gun. Uh, the guy whose head you never see? The guy who's so tall you never see his head, yeah. Uh, Punk I mean, Rock Ronald Reagan. I just now figured out you're talking about Zex's assistant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> From that last episode we did where with the Nagas, you didn't catch us talking laughing about that either. Right, that's right. I no, I it all came back to me now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so so Zex's assistant is a guy named uh, actor named Tiny Ron. And he's in like a ton of stuff and is still in a ton of stuff. Tiny Ron or Tiny Tiny Ron, because he's like eight feet, you know, it's, a, okay. it's one of them. Okay. It's like Tiny Lester, but he's like he's five he's like eight feet tall, but he was Al. He's in all kinds of stuff as like the tall guy. Right, right. I guess we should talk I mean, this is this is a Nagus episode. Yeah. Um very little of Deep Space Nine's cast is in this. There's a, a scene. Yeah, that's go. when I that was kind of what I was saying. Like everything feels very demonstrative and like we're trying to do Shakespeare. Cause like Star Trek, all the actors and everything like to pretend like they're doing Shakespeare. Like, yes. oh, this is a big deal. It's like Shakespeare. It's like I'm sorry, it's no Deadwood, which is like Shakespeare for the modern age for yeah, me. The, but yeah, body embodying Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, as good as you know. But you know what? I mean, I love Star Trek, but it ain't Shakespeare. Sorry. Yeah, Patrick Stewart. This was originally pitched as uh, for, by Hilary Botter, who was like this. Um, I think probably the only female on the original TNG writers' room. Um, they just brought and, DC Fontana in for one-off scripts yeah 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 she was never in the writer's room but i I don't not that i know but like hillary botter was and i mean like during sort of prime period Mm. tng ron ronald moore brandon brog all those guys and iris Stephen bear um and she pitched an episode that of a female ferengi who was dressed as a male ferengi who fell in love who was having to aid in some sort of whatever detail, was having to aid Riker. Oh, she sh- oh she pitched it and, in uh, TNG. Uh, yeah, she pitched it in TNG. Now wait a minute, how many of these episodes have originally been? I mean, Dude, we've you just watched. Said it, though. Like, uh, you're right, you're right, but you just said we are almost out of 1993. Every episode that we've done on this podcast aired in 1993. That's right. It started. It started in January of 93, season one. Went 19 episodes, and now we're seven episodes. <laughs> Into season two. I want to like be critical, but what you said that we are almost out of 1993, it hit me like, oh my God, like 
they had to write and produce all of this in one year. Oh yeah, done. yeah. So I mean, they had to. They, they probably had to break after season one, but still, it's like a month yeah. or something. So I mean, that's like five, six scripts I received. I mean, they might have had some lead time. They worked on it in two thousand two, but still, or nineteen ninety two. But yeah, nineteen ninety three. Like so, it's thin soup creatively. I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah. No one's working on it for a long time. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you say that it was about a female Ferengi on the Next Generation because I felt like was the Ferengi culture as fleshed out that no. they had a thing where no. Ferengi women were a thing at all, or that they knew they that weren't I supposed to wear clothes. I, yes, or? actually, that's they do. They have one episode where a Ferengi captures Troy and Troy's mother, and then they, they and that's when they mention typically yep. Ferengi women are, are not uh, clothed. Okay. Yeah, so I do okay. remember that. Yeah, and so that I, definitely happens because Luxana talks about it too much yes. in that book yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, let's unpack this for a little bit. Um, because of how the, the women are treated in Ferengi society. Because to be honest with you, I don't buy it. Like, I think it's, I mean, obviously I think it's an affectation to make these these creatures, these, these like, monsters of, like, a, of a race seem even more despicable is that they're lascivious and obsessed and only use women for sex. Right, well, the Ferengi as a culture and alien... They're basically portraying the worst parts of kind of capitalist humanity and also that, our sexism and our kind of I, lasciviousness towards women and just they're all. But historically, but historically, this kind of like the way they talk about it, when especially when Pell is talking to Dax, I was like, well, you would never see a, a Ferengi woman. We're not allowed out of our house. We're not allowed out of that. It seems to me like they're painting a picture of of like the way the West sort of looks at the way women are treated in Saudi Arabia. Or, oh, or, I, or, or sort of a reli- or heavily religious societies, let's say that. Yeah, I, I never so, even thought of it that way because I felt like the Ferengi are such a like uh, comment on Western capitalism and that they were more so making a statement about like 50s era kind of women are meant to be in the household kind of thing and yeah. blah, blah, blah. I mean, so nowadays I that, that would definitely be a, a cultural religious thing, but I, I don't know if they even had that in their mind in 1993 because the writers and the showrunners and the dudes that are behind Star Trek are still kind of like, hey, hey, let's make sexy broads and stuff, you know? Yeah, they're still baby, they're still stuck in the baby boomer sort of mindset. Exactly, of yeah. But it is interesting because the Ferengis, like, like, like the, with the rules of acquisition are such like a religious text for them. That they would, yeah. and then they also have this repressive kind of. If they, are, if that's their religion, then they have this repressive religious quote unquote culture. But that, but I don't understand what he way. doesn't buy. Like you don't buy it. You, you think it's capitalist societies? Yes, there are. They are misogynistic, and they create gender equalities. But how they do it is a little bit more sophisticated. You know, the 1950s woman didn't make them naked and keep them at home. It sold them. It commoditized them. Women were sort of active members of communities and societies. Yeah. They weren't oppressed like this. And so whenever you have these a-religious sort of... Well, like, I feel like the, the Ferengi, it's like... It's like the same thing as women high, vacuuming yeah. in high heels, except in Ferengi But it seems like that they, they, they're capital, like, they are, they are essentially a monetary worldview organization. And they also highly uh, sort of seek after skill. They're, they're a meritocracy. Like, they really do believe that, you know, who has the lobes wins. Yeah, and so if this woman at the, I mean, if a woman rose up and did negotiate these really, pro, I, like I think profit would trump these sort of gender norms. No, you're right. It would. I, it feels weird that it doesn't. And it feels, honestly, it feels, later yeah. on in DS9, we this gets kind addressed. Of, yeah, we do address this sort of thing too much. without spoiling anything. Yeah, but, so you, but I got thinking, weird and creepy about it. And the last time we talked about Ferengis, I'll just say that much. <laughs> but what I, if I'm hearing you right, James? What I understand you're just saying, you are bothered about how the writers themselves like packaged this line of belief. It's not sort the of, Ferengis. Yeah. You believe the Ferengis? It's a flaw with how they're written. It's, it's how it's conceived. Yeah, it's it's the flaw is how it's conceived. Because at, at beginning, your beginning, I thought you were taking up for them like. The position of a men's rights activist, like I don't buy no, the Ferengi no, 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 really no, that no. bad. No, I see no, what you're no, saying. No, no. You're saying that it's a poorly conceived, inconsistent with the internal logic of the world. Exactly, exactly. Right. And you want to get in the mindset of like. I just want to clear with, that up. 
Yeah, no, when I'm with these Bajoran popes and shit, I like want to get into like how the worldview and the mindset of these Bajoran popes. And if it turns out that there were some sort of huge gender inequities in that culture, I'm more likely to sort of buy that because I think that reflects back on religious societies in America or in on, on Earth. But with these like sort of highly capitalistic societies and stuff like that, I just don't think I just don't think that they would not want to make money off women i just don't think that that would be a hard block for them yeah and the world building doesn't quite make logical yeah. sense there also they're showed as highly sexualized beings so mm-hmm. you have uh whoever the fuck was the ferengi on the tng who fell in love with loxana troy a powerful self-possessed woman you have <laughs> you know you know what it, it was probably armin shimmerman i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah it was armin shimmerman but i don't know if he was quark or whoever no i but, doubt uh, it it was armin shimmerman yeah. in other makeup probably or maybe max exactly. chick, but probably yeah. somebody that's on ds9 right now <laughs> yes and then you have the sort of playful sexual sort of advances quark to dax who is a powerful self-possessed woman and then you have the the nagus essentially falling in love with kira this episode uh, yeah, who is the, and, like yeah. he gets away with a lot more than you'd expect. Kira yes, would let somebody yeah, get yes. away with. <laughs> she's definitely well. Whenever you supply a whole continent with fertilizer, right? Know, and she still buys throw... a lot of patience with her. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah. And then Dax gives her her little talk. That was my one. That whole thing just kind of rubbed me weird. I think that you can save that for another race that treats women that sort of. Yeah, disorder. probably. Yeah. That's what I think. Okay, yeah. so yeah, let's go into the episode. All right, so it starts off, Morn's asleep. Odo wakes him up and tells him to keep walking. Jadzia's playing Tongo with the boys. Tongo, not Dabo, which is usually the game that we play. Ferengi don't play Dabo when they're with each other. They just play Tongo, which has which is basically poker. Dabo is craps or maybe roulette. And then, da- and then Tongo is poker. There's four things you can do. You can confront, evade. Acquire and two of or retreat. Two of them are the same thing, I think. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, there's the four, and then there's more that comes that are the same thing. There's confront, evade, acquire, and retreat. And then later on, for some reason, risk. The risk is five. The purchase is three. You can sell at eight, but purchase and sell are the same thing. I don't know. It's, it's like they no, don't know you, the rules. You know, buy sell. You know, buy low and sell high. It's like a stock. It's like a stock buy. And I that, those oh, okay. aren't bars of latinum they're playing with their strips of latinum right yeah because there's like 40 right. in those cups and i was like are you telling me that the no j consortium like sold on no, land yeah there's five str- of those yeah somewhere if, if you want to be a big nerd about it and go on memory alpha there, there's a <laughs> breakdown of strips versus bars versus something else of latinum and then hell comes up and talks to quark about on sand peas instead of low carb beans <clears throat> and they make you thirsty so she can he can sell more drinks but at the beginning of Twelfth Night, I'm trying to remember, or is this just me talking out of my ass? Is there something about them putting a pearl in the drinks? Oh, I don't remember. I feel like maybe there is. I don't remember. T- because we were in yeah. this play when we were, when I was in 10th yeah, we grade were and you were in 11th grade uh, what, over 15 remember. years ago. Or, it was well more than 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I think Deep Space Nine was still on the air. <laughs> Let's just put yeah. it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, it was it was it was not that deep. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyways, I feel like there's a thing where they do like if music be the fruit of love, play on that. Then maybe he puts yes. a pearl in the wine or whatever. Any Shakespeare scholars that are listening want to tell me I'm full of shit. I think that this was probably texturally pretty close to Twelfth Night. Yeah, to the yeah. Beats of Twelfth. That's why I thought of it as like, and it would be the kind of thing that they. But I yeah. think that I think that Pell is clearly a woman. Mm-hmm. Like I think I noticed that pretty early on uh, that the, the actress is played by a woman, but yeah, I didn't so know I. if the story was going there. You know, uh, okay. like as the relationship, like I, I sort of noticed it as their relationship, as her nurturing sort of yeah, right, relationship. Yeah. It gets very much like what? Okay, yeah, but I think even in this pre-credit scene, I'm just kind of like. Mm, is she supposed to be a woman? Because if not, this is, uh, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. Maybe I wasn't sure if it was a woman or just like another kid. You know, like uh, Aaron Eisenberg. Aaron Eisenberg is, uh, you know, a very short. He's you know, not just, a kid. You know, yeah. yeah I, that's why I didn't notice. I didn't call him a kid. But he's a very, <laughs> you know, he's he's very short and small as a yeah. person. So I was like, oh, did they get another one of them? Yeah, it's almost a meet cute. Like kind of. <laughs> except Pell's been working at the bar for a while. Yeah, but I get the feeling that, like, Quark hasn't noticed him. No, and, yeah. And, yeah. and Rom obviously hates him because Rom is, like, bizarro Ferengi. He doesn't understand smart people. and yeah. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> sort of drawn to dumb people. So. Yeah, it's the kind of thing, okay, this is a game after the bar closes. 
we let the Ferengi play, and then also Dax. 59th rule, freed rifles is seldom cheap. The 22nd rule, a wise man can hear profit in the wind. And the 33rd rule, once the Nagus uh, calls in on subspace, his personal frequency, his bat phone, if you will, and that it... <laughs> It never never hurts to suck up to the boss. Just yes, yeah. I just I, I feel the need get... to talk about every role of acquisition because our fucking podcast is called that. <laughs> we should, yeah. We actually get a half of one too that mm-hmm. I think just dangles for the rest of the show. Oh, that comes up later. Yeah. Oh, yeah, don't think I didn't write that down. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and you have Dax in this scene. Dax seems kind of cool. Like this is the start of the Dax that I remembered. Yeah, yeah. It seems like I've said that three times now on the show. (laughs) This is another restart of the decks that I remember. Just sort of like a woman who's of interests. Yeah. She she lives life and she's gambling with Ferengi and doing this. And and I think later on they even use her as like sort of a a little bit of a defense of Ferengi culture. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, especially, yeah, it's that mm -hmm. kind of Star Trek idic philosophy. Like, we have to respect everybody, you know. And, but does it in a way that's not asshole-ish and condescending. Right, like, right. now, now, we have to respect all exactly. cultures. Exactly, like, yeah. Like, no, oh, I know you want to think they're assholes. But she's actually like, no, like, you go in and see what's fucking cool. Like, I mean, you get the ceiling that she's like a woman who's like rolling craps in the alleyways, surfing with the, like, surfing Huntington, you know. Like, she's doing all of the fun stuff. She's drinking deep from life and that's a uh, that's fun to watch right even right. if it's poorly written and poorly acted yeah she's not even that in this episode but like yeah, it's she's, a, yeah, she's fine but at times i was like as i was watching her it's like oh this is dex i like and then i but in the back of my mind i'm still thinking you know i could imagine another actor doing it yeah. where i liked it a little bit more <laughs> but yeah and actually i actually in uh two scenes later and i don't know if we want to go on this like sort of chronologically or just two scenes later she's having a conversation with pell mm-hmm. and oh, yeah, basically the, she's trying to I let pell know yeah i know you're in love she's saying you're clearly in love with quark yeah and then and pell's just like fuck it you know like she doesn't even try to like hide it she goes i know and he doesn't even know i'm a woman and she goes you're a woman, a woman? yeah that was the best part of the whole episode because there was it was uh, an acknowledgement of feelings without gay panic. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I was, and it was, it, us, was. It, was, it was a tacit acceptance that maybe homosexuality existed. Yeah, in that's the show. that's what I was gonna say. Or yeah, that's the, what I liked about culture. that re- reveal. Like, oh, I I know that you're in love with mm-hmm. Court, and that's totally fine. The surprising fact that is that you're not gay. <laughs> like, yeah, like uh, oh, you're not you're not yeah, a dude. Yeah. And so that was like at the end of the day, I'm not totally sure if that was a performance decision or did everyone in the show including terry farrell mean for that inference to be made from the her line reading i think or, so or because the next line is the next line is that. i've never met a ferengi female so i think it i think yeah, it, whoever wrote the script knew that it was a big deal that we've never seen a female ferengi and that that's mm. a reveal and that the show has never had a homosexual right but they want to be the kind of show i that, feel like that wasn't part of the script writing writer's Conceit, you think uh, it concept. wasn't? I don't think so. So that's what I'm saying, because I think that they're saying that, oh, it's totally like what she like the inference is it's totally acceptable to be homosexual, at least in her eyes and probably in the Federation's eyes. You've just not ever seen that on the show. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that it's like the 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 the, the, C, the Star Trek show that's going to come out next year or this year, when, you know, the, the the CBS Star Trek show, it's homosexuality is going to be cool on that show. Well, but, yeah, the showrunner is gay. Yeah, but, yeah, but I mean, not just that, but like like society is cool with that exactly to the point yeah, where yeah. it would show that you just go back to 1993 and right like, i feel like the people behind the show were probably cool with it too they and like, knew that star trek would be cool with it but they, and the star trek is, would be cool with it but at the same time but it's a love that dare not speak its name and also probably none of the writers are gay it's a bunch of straight white dudes mm-hmm. that have grown up kind of for the most probably a little way a lot of the ways that i was in the 90s like I'm fine with gay people, but I've still got a lot of this kind of hang-ups. Um, I don't know it. Yeah, hang-ups about about it. If you ask me about it, I'll, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, gay people are. I'm fine with gay people." But like in the way that I write or whatever, and and if, especially writers for television yeah. know that to play to this kind of what people want, mm-hmm. which is like this, you know, sexy aliens and stuff, and because we're, we're doing Star Trek. But I didn't know if they'd said that because I mean, you would have to say it's on their mind because the show is. 
leading up, of, we're we're about an act away from a pure gay panic scene, right? Like, uh, and I and then oh, yeah, I think yeah, we should yeah, just and, go and, so, and like basically talking about the storyline. They're thrown together to make these negotiations, and yeah. um, with the funniest looking alien. Okay, race, I, think I wanted to have. talk about that just for a minute oh, because that talk- was a complete throwback yeah, to the nineteen sixties makeup of the aliens on the show. Uh-huh. I wanted to say the same thing that felt like classic 60s and I hate aliens, it, but that's just me. Makeup. I did too. I did too. Not everybody else did. Pillar did too. Like I don't know who liked it. Everyone, everyone that I, I was reading all of these different critical things of the show, it had to like, be a budget. Everyone that was reason. involved with it hated. They must have gotten a deal on yeah. That was like paint. I, and and that was. I mean, couldn't they just make some other like fucking like I don't know? I mean, everybody else is some various form of latex minge on their face. Like, well, can't they, they do that? That's what I was thinking. It's like they've already got a number of Ferengis in this episode. Yeah, they pro- maybe they blew their makeup budget, oh, so true. now they all have, all they have. You know what would be funny is if they just had a whole a race of people in the Gamma Quadrant whose skin was reflected by like refracted the light so they were invisible and so then you just had like an alien walk in with like goggles hung up by like fishing fishing wire and then voices <laughs> that would have been that would have been great that's what they, they should have done i mean if you their makeup budget was so low they couldn't even pay to cover the right. whole body in makeup well not only that yeah and i got the feeling because i i can't tell if because their chests are open and they're very uh muscular uh both yeah. the male and the female i couldn't tell if that was like a fake uh, yeah i've always felt that ricardo montalban's chest right. in wrath of god is like <laughs> yeah. a pl- like a plastic was pl- a prosthetic yes like a like a like a rubber chest but um and, and i was trying to tell if it was that or if this was actually like built dudes and then they started acting and i was like they just went to somebody's gym yeah. with 20 bucks in their hand and say who wants to be in Stark's Deep Space Nine. And the, the gym people said, what? A Deep Space what? It's Star Trek. It's yeah. 20 bucks and it's Star Trek. Come on with me. The thing that made me think of is like the doci were clearly total 60s makeup. Yep. And it also reminded me of being a theater major. It totally reminded me of this like stage production I had to watch in college, Taming of the Shrew. Where they had uh, what's his name, the fucking Beastmaster as the lead <laughs> from Taming of the Shrew, and it just struck me as just the aesthetic look struck me looked just like him from that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, oh. Was he dressed as the Beastmaster while doing Taming of the Shrew? No, but he was dressed in vests and stuff, and he did a bunch of like, look at me being strong, and they probably had him with his shirt off for a little. Bit. It was a Lorenzo Lamas kind of casting choice for. But no, the guy from Beastmaster is actually a great Shakespearean actor. Oh, is he? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I should know his name. Right oh, okay. Now. So he's but, he was up to the task. Yeah, yeah. He got he got cast in Beastmaster because he was a because I was picturing Kevin Sorbo's Taming of the Shrew. No, no, no. Oh, okay. So where are we in the plot here? So yeah, they're thrown together for these negotiations in the Gamma Quadrant, and the lady Ferengi comes clean with, like, kisses Quark, and Quark does not know, Yeah, and then it happened one night type yeah. scenario. Yeah, right, right. They're, they've traveled to the Gamma Quadrant to buy Tulaberry wine. Because the Nagus has his mm-hmm. thing that he's trying to do, and they keep, and then Pell keeps saying he knows something that you don't. He's got an angle, and then Quark is kind of an idiot. He's like, "Oh, I'm gonna the Nagus likes me. I'm gonna make a bunch of money." And she keeps putting up, "No, there's got to be an angle." And they don't know till they get to the Gamma Quadrant. They meet all these um, stupid ass makeup aliens, the Dosai, and then they. Quark throws a barrel and and doesn't still doesn't sell anything or whatever. Then they go to a bed. Well, um, she's like at happened? some point I almost think like was she she was trying to get him to drink Tulaberry wine, right? Oh, because because the, the, it was almost like she was trying to roofie right. him, right? Well, she went like, well when that was like, when they get to the room, she's like, oh my god, Quark's like, I'm taking off my clothes, I'm getting ready for bed. And she knows is like, yeah, and she's scratching her ears or something because she can't sleep in that stuff. I guess was the implication. And she was just totally uncomfortable. Yeah, because Bajoran women have very small lobes, and then it's Vapia. The reason they go there is because. The 48th rule of acquisition, the bigger the smile, the bigger the knife. That's how Quark knows that the Nagus is probably setting them up for something. They go there. She's freaking out because he's going to bed and taking off his clothes and stuff. And then she's like, here, drink this wine. And then she jumps on top of him. And kisses him and while on top of him on the bed. Like, it looks like she just kind of throws her. It's poorly blocked. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, she, the, yeah. Kiss, yeah. the kiss is kind of... Is she just falling over him or is she trying to get on top of yeah. him? You don't know because it's 
the poorly blocked. And so then Red Sonia of the Dosa <laughs> yeah. comes in and like and, and is like totally cool with this. Yeah, like yeah. Two she's like, oh, yeah, it's like oh, it's fine. Yeah, she's like she's like that's cool, dude. I, I mean, I didn't want to I don't want to get involved. So like you know, she was like, I'll come back in the morning. Yeah, you, and they you look busy. A, a, obvious Quark is in full gay panic. I mean, and I don't want to say it's gay panic. It's just I mean, a dude kissed him. It was weird. We would all freak out, but there was that, and then the the, the woman, the Pell, was nervous, and so they... Yeah, the 21st rule sort of is away. never place friendship above profit, because whatever, and then before they try to go to sleep, the 103rd rule is sleep can interfere, dot, 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 and then gay panic. Probably with profit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, presumably. But, um, yeah. But he can't panic. So then they bring a woman back in, and she's like, I know you're trying to be like the Robert Mundavi of the Gamma Quadrant, but we don't even have 100,000 barrels of tulip berries. You're going to have to talk to somebody else. And then they're basically, and then she says, and then you're going to have to talk to the Dominion. The Dominion. The Dominion. Bump, bump, and then bump. she's like, that's fine. And then, she, and then she's like, let me leave you two fellas alone. And then she walks out. Yes. So everything that's written about this episode, only reason this episode's noted, is that it's the first episode where they say the word Dominion. Which is a and big that's deal. in the context of the overall history, it's noted for that. Y- yeah, so exactly. I'm sure. I'm sure it didn't win any GLAAD awards. No. <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, Quark is, so, like, Armin yeah. Zimmerman, at some point I read somewhere, it was like proud that the Ferengi were the one that discovered the Dominion for some reason. Yes. He's proud of that. Um, uh, the riskier so, the road, the greater the profit. Rule this wasn't 62. a fuck up, by the way. This was a. This was a. By this time, they had started heavily constructing a concept of the Dominion. That's what I wanted to ask. If you had any insight yeah. to that, did they know where this Rob- was going, or did they just throw this in there? Some have this idea, and as yeah. to flow underneath it as this kind of thing that they don't talk about. But did they know it, where it was going to end up? Well, Michael Piller said that I was. Uh, he said we've had essentially two Star Trek shows. Based on exploring unexplored space. And it was pretty clear that we pitched it and everybody was excited with Deep Space Nine that that would be it too. You would get into ships and go and explore the Gamma Quadrant. And he was like, but I I, I didn't want that. I wanted the show Deep Space Nine to be something a little bit different. And so I wanted that you actually just just butt up against a big bad. Um, And so he started having everybody cook uh, for it. And Michael Piller's taking most of the credit, but it seems like that Robert Hewitt... Who is at this time? I believe I think it's his name. Robert Hewitt is at this time a writer on uh, TNG, but he comes up with the idea of giant sort of consortium of bad guys that run that rule the Gamma Quadrant with an iron fist. That is like that was sort of his thing, and he knew that someone in the process knew that they wanted to introduce them, uh, introduce them not in an episode of like it wouldn't be the Do- the Dominion episode, you right? Know, right. They wanted that to it do would it start being basically. Yeah, like, yeah, they would start, you know, building up this sort of that, you know, every episode someone says something about the Dominion, they talk about the Dominion, and they ramp it up to where the time that you actually do sort of are hit with the Dominion, it's it's a thing, you know, so, and I think that's well done, I think that's a good, I'm glad that it seems like that was the first time mm-hmm. Robert Hewitt Wolf is the writer who came up with the Dominion, and, and sort of the structure of it, and I think they, he, he even came up with the idea that, as we discover later on, that it's basically just kind of three core alien races at three different levels with three different functions. Oh, uh-huh, okay. Um, so he, I mean, he developed... But we're not there yet, so let's yeah, not, yeah, no, let's, no, let's, no spoiler, but that... Let's, yeah, but like that... that I'm curious that I'm curious about that, because you say Michael Piller was on board of that, and it was Robert Hewitt. What was mm-hmm. Dave... Because Berman... I about said Dave Berman again. Uh, Rick Berman. Yeah, Dave Berman. Rick, not not the Silver Jews guy. It's the, no. the Silver. The, I don't know what the Silver Jews idea of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to see his pitch for Star Trek. I'm just curious about what Rick, because Rick Berman is taking it, especially in this. In the movie took on the, as the steward of Gene's vision. Uh-huh. And if he fought against any of that stuff because it wasn't Star Trek enough, or was he too concerned about getting Voyager going? Is, I think he was concerned about getting generations going. Oh right, he yeah time. he was doing movies, so he didn't care. Yeah, so I think that he was that, he was too busy was. fucking up movies to really do much more <laughs> than just take the producer yeah. credit on the shows at this point. I, I yeah, I think this is a. I mean, I I think that this was a um, 
they took advantage of a lack of oversight at this point. Yeah, well, good for them. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, and I've never, you know, I know I've said really awful things about I receiving Bayer, but I, I, in general, like it seems like Michael Pillar kind of, you know, was steering the show in the right direction or was at least interested in making it a unique show. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and and I think that, like like I said, that Robert Hewitt Wolf was on TNG's writer's room and so is Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga. I think that you start seeing this sort of talent like, you know, Ronald D. Moore and, and uh, Brandon Braga was going to write the finale of TNG and going to write Generations. Mm-hmm. Hillary Botter was going to go off with Brandon Braga and create Voyager. I think they just, like, I think that, you know, Hewitt, like, Hewitt Wolf was like, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to Deep Space Nine and I'm going to start working on Deep Space Nine. And when the dust settled, Ron D. Moore to two. So I think that you get like, this is where the good writers start coming in. Right. Well, they're, they're, yeah, so yeah. The, or the ones that cared about the franchise. That's that's what I've picked yeah, up about yeah. Voyager. Is like, mm-hmm. it was mainly, I mean, I'm sure they cared about what they were doing, but just listening to like Brian Fuller interviews, it was like, these were the ones that were more like, just, hey, we're writing a TV show. Yeah. And so I think that they got, that's when, so you start seeing this sort of talent, positive talent drain mm-hmm. from TNG over to Deep Space Nine um, to help sort of construct the Dominion. So in a very real way, this is sort of the beginning of the the show proper. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the Dominion changes everything about this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About what you've seen up to this point. We've already talked. But at this point, it's, it's just a, it's a clever ruse that that you know it's pretty simple that robert uh my dinner with andre was trying to finagle a relationship with the dominion and using quark as just the tool to do that right yeah he learns that there's so, a thing called the karama that he needs to talk yeah. to they go back well him and pill are gone uh rom has gotten very jealous and ransacks <laughs> pill's room and then they threw like I I don't know if this is a thing that I've never noticed about the show before, but the score got really intense when Rom yeah. was ransacked. It was like something from like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. Like, yeah, they're really telegraphing scores. Yeah, yeah, and it was like I've discovered the fucking Ark, and so when he opens that thing and there's the ears, why she has two mm-hmm. pairs of ears? I guess she just needs one, two pairs because they're I need a spare. Sure. I've got two. I've got two pairs of shoes. Right. They need two pairs so that she can that he can find a pair when he's when she's gone. But whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um. So yeah, uh, that's kind of bullshit. That could be a male who lost his ears in a bad deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He he is awful. Just that she's a woman. Like the scene reveal happens later. So Quark comes back and tells uh, my dinner with Andre all of the stuff. And my dinner with Andre is like, excellent or whatever. And I'm going <laughs> to cut off, you know, and like, um, <laughs> conceivable. And, um, and then so Rom pulls Quark aside and goes out of earshot yeah, in the center of the camera. I like camera. that the way that yeah, the, they do a little the pantomime little reveal. Mime scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, so you don't really know what was said, but you know that Quark finds out that she's a woman and passes out. Right. And does like a comedy fall. Right. Um, then that gets Bashir in the episode because um, <laughs> right. he's got a contract because <laughs> he's got he's got to check him out. Yeah, so I think we've gotten everybody. I think O'Brien walked past Tiny Ron once. <laughs> Tiny, Tiny Ronald Reagan once. <laughs> okay, because uh, because yeah, you know that when you when you mentioned that, I was like, wait a minute, has Brian? I don't, I didn't see O'Brien at all, but. If he got it, yeah. Brian briefly walked by Tiny Ron, more to set how tall. Uh, okay. Uh, punk rock Ron Reagan is, and um, that was it. So everybody's in the show. Everybody's uh, Odo had a scene. Everybody had a scene. Yeah, that scene where Odo has has to be put in Rom's shoes to talk about whether or not yeah. what he would do if he had a brother. That was like one of the highlights of the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, really? Because it because oh, I think so. Because Odo. The look on Odo's face is he's processing the idea of having a family. Uh-huh. And this we're on the precipice of being introduced into more of his storyline. Uh-huh. I think that was a very deliberate and well-placed scene. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's the second time they've talked about a brother. There's like the scene later in um, the siege or something where Quark is like, 
talking about Ron being gone, and he talks to O'Brien about, you have a brother, were you sad when your brother left? Because Odo does, isn't buying Quark's bullshit. And then, mm-hmm. and then O'Brien's like, yeah, I was. And then, then Odo buys it. And then, then again here, like we set up the, Odo's got a soft spot if you bring up family for certain because he's so lowly. I guess get all that, and then like all, all, all you know, the shit hits the fan. Art, artistic wise and story wise, they're gonna try and get her arrested because she's wearing clothes, and that's a crime. It doesn't make sense if you have half of your population being forced to be naked. How could you sell them clothes? Like that's like a whole market there. Like, that's Jesus, what I'm saying. This is the, it's the yeah. stupidest thing. The more you unpack that, <laughs> yes. it's the stupidest thing. Well, well, you, you think could that they would be made to wear as many clothes well, as possible. Well, but so Ferengi males don't like being conned into buying things. So, from a uh, consumer point of view, they enact laws so that they can't buy clothes for their women, so they save money. That's, but they don't do that. That's a way to go with an alien race where you. That they're like they're being subjugated because the men in Safranke like society don't want to pay for it. That's my bullshit justification that don't, don't doesn't no, work. No, okay, okay, <laughs> but there is a there is a framework for this, and oh my god, is this is this clunky? But uh, or is this uh, dangerous territory? But there, uh, the way the stereotypes of a of a certain chosen racial people. Oh no, um, <laughs> Are we- uh, have existed in European culture and now in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, like that that stereotype of them is a person of Spartan people who are vigilantly trying to like, you know, like screw over people financially. Um, and I think that you could say that like, obviously, uh, you, a less generous person could say that the Ferengis are a parody of that. Yeah, or at least a, I've yeah. heard that complaint but, before. That they're yeah yeah. They're 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 problematic. Jew, they're problematic towards Jewish people. Let's yes. just say. Okay, but um, or a, a stereotype of that. But like I, you know, so you can make them as people who are Spartan, but are like vigilantly trying to like rip off people. But in their lives, they're like chaste and humble and don't drink and aren't you know sexually promiscuous. But you don't see the Frankie is that way. They're gambling all the time. In the first Nagus episode, they're selling to each other and scamming each other. So they're just an all-around, they're like really into like deals and shit. Yeah, That's even though culture. there's a rule of the acquisition that a deal is a deal as long as it's a Ferengi or something. But whatever. Yeah, but like you like the, like, but they like buying things. Yes. They don't just like selling things. So like, I... I, I don't buy that either. So I'm, I'm with the whole, like, the naked thing is just a ridiculous, and I it, it has to be burdensome as the show goes on. I know, I mean, I've seen all these episodes, but I don't remember shit. That has to be, like, oh, burdensome it, for it, them. Yeah, it gets resolved. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah, so, like, I mean, that, it had, is interesting that just to had me to happen. That, that naked women is such a big deal, because out of all these alien cultures, there are, n- nudity is a big deal to all of them. Which is weird when you think about it that there wouldn't be mm-hmm. aliens that are like, yeah, oh, clothes, clothes yeah. are weird because we're, you know. <laughs> Actually, the uh, Betazoid are naked on their wedding day. Uh, oh, with Luxana, it's all about that, right? And that's that's like a tradition. But that's just it's their like wedding the day. Betazoids are like that. There, you'd think there'd be aliens that are just like, we don't wear clothes because uh, why and would And they're it? actual, like, they were like, Risons, the people of the planet, you know, the, the pleasure planet Risa, they're actually Risons that I think are just like hot naked people cool. all the time. Yeah, like sort of super cool with all that shit. Yeah. But you're right, most of the time it doesn't. But it's just like the, like last week with Malor, the Malora episode with the person raised in zero, in lesser yeah, gravity yeah, than yeah, Earth. Yeah. Like that, you'd be like, there would be all over the place. Yeah. With alien races, like there would be people raised in two G, one G, zero G, like yeah. Well, like, Star that Trek would be all over the place. Star Trek, especially when we talk about like all of Dax's ex uh, lovers or whatever, yeah, they're all weird ass aliens that we can never see because we can't portray it on television. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, so when you get to the end, and just basically everything sucks. There's like a scene where basically Quark admits that he loves Pell. Like that, and then gets jacked off on the yeah, ears. Yeah, the yeah, he gets jacked. I off. hate that. I hate that, guys. I think that's the grossest oh, fucking the ear thing. masturbation. I don't. I don't like to see that. I don't like to see. <laughs> I think it. it's funny. It's mostly Armin Shimmerin's voice as it's and his eyes rolling back <laughs> yeah. as it's getting. It's mostly the response he, that he, I don't it's like. It's mostly that he's he's a good content. enough actor that you really see him coming, and it freaks you. Yeah. Out. Yes, that. 
I, I actually, not, I know this sounds weird, but I think that I want to actually sort of put a pin in where the pleasure level is on that. Because if it's just like, because sometimes they, like, that scene, it was kind of like she caressed his face or blew gently into his ear. And he, you know, you get a shiver when a woman does that, and that's benign in a show. They had a good kiss or, before or, the year. But, but sometimes it, sometimes they respond to it like they're being jerked off or they're getting their prostate massaged. And if that's the case, that's gross at the end of the episode, especially right. in that moment. Well, so in like, this one, they had like, a pretty well-deserved kiss, even though for what I'll say later about how I feel about the whole thing. Like the kiss, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, that was a good kiss between them. And then she does a gentle stroke of the ear before she walks off. She's not doing a full... Um, What's her name from that Q episode? Who's just like jacking off his ears or whatever? <laughs> yes, yeah. But that makes sense because she's trying to manipulate. Yeah, him yeah. In private, like that makes more sense. But like this is, yeah, whatever. It just all falls apart. Everybody gets involved. She gets in trouble with the Grand Nagus, but it turns out that the it's crime. He's, in, he's implicated it. as it's, much as Quark is, so they have to let it go. Yeah, so they're all implicated in this crime because this woman schemed uh, schemed them, it's, and she's basically going away. No one, so she's not going to be prosecuted for the crime, but she's got to get the fuck out of Dodge. Like, and so she she leaves, like, and it, it's just like, it's what the fuck? Like, I did like, like that a, Quirk, actually, once he learns he's she's a woman, he's, he turns... He's trying to protect her. Well, no, but yeah. he's, like, also, like, not on board with it. Like, he's really not. Like, he's, like, he's still, like, oh, man, I, he has his feelings, but he's, like, she's, like, well, we can run off together and... But you and he's like, well, but you'd still be wearing clothes. And she's like, well, I wouldn't have to. It's like, so what? Like, I and it would bother me because he's still part Mm -hmm. of Ferengi culture. It bothers him as much. It's a. I agree that she shouldn't have to be live like that. He's like, no, it would be a problem for me if you were not a good Ferengi woman. Well, let's unpack what we would change. Yeah, we should jump into that. Yeah, because that's where I'm at. Let's get into that. I think that the biggest problem with this and what I would change. Is that I would let all of these like sort of like because like I said I was kind of into the like this part of the storyline in the beginning of the show but like at the end it just all goes to shit a there's too much goddamn story like I don't yeah. care about the setting up the Robert Mundavi trading circles whatever I wasn't interested in that if these people have got to be on a special mission that's fine but why not let all of this sort of beats and things play out as like it would in a romance drama or something like that. Let it play out in private amongst them. Don't have the ROM reveal. You don't need that. Don't bring Rob or Nagus into this. Just have Quark learn something about himself and learn something about women. He ultimately can't. It's too much. It's too different for him. He definitely feels something, but it's too much for him. But as she leaves and as he basically, you know, kicks her out of his life, he realizes that she changed something about him. And I don't think any of that was shown. Yeah. Like, that's an arc. That's a character arc. Just change all of that. Get all the extraneous bullshit out of there. I know you called Wallace Shawn onto the show, and you got to feel like you got to give him scenes. But this is like, I don't know. It was just a mess. Yeah, I mean, I liked Wallace Shawn. I like, I was like as, no, as no, much no ass-grabbing he got Shawn. with Kira, which was kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. Butt but slap. my biggest 24th pro- century butt slap. Yeah, yeah. Like twice. But my biggest problem was this thing. The thing that I would change is like, hell, I don't understand why she's in love with Quark. I would have made her, like the whole thing is just her throwing fucking googly eyes at Quark. Like make her a bit of more of a hard ass. Make her, like she's a weak person. Make her a stronger Ferengi instead of like yeah. throwing away the... That's good desire for profit so quickly because of love. she's good at being a Ferengi. She's good. She's yeah, she she moved here to here to pursue profit because she doesn't want to be put in the box that Ferengi women are, which I'm on board with. That's great. But then she, and then I never expected to fall in love with Quark. Okay, fine. Fall in love with Quark, but don't be such a pushover once you do. Like, the whole mm-hmm. thing with her just giving yeah. googly eyes all the time it, is just like... It took guts to get as far as yeah, she did. Yeah. Yeah. So where did the where did the guts go? I mean, That's I mean, I understand it doesn't change who you are. You still have you're still a person with a right, resolve. Right. Like she, if you could if you could like leave your home world. Yeah, yeah. In the if she were like a more vax type vash, 
not the stampede, yeah. but from the Q episode. Like, yeah. see, we're more like, yeah, I'm all about profit, and that's what I find attractive about, about Quirk because we're the same. We're both cutthroat. Well, what motivates? We're both cutthroat and yeah. won't put up with shit. Like, I w- I'm not going to give an inch to for profit just because I'm in love with Quirk. Yeah, like game recognizes yeah, yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, that's what's attractive yeah, and like, about it. Is her is her goal at the beginning of the episode? Throughout uh, is her beginning of the at the beginning of the episode is her goal to go and dress up like a man and make it in a man's world. Or is she trying to yeah, yeah. get Don't make her- Quark to woo him? And I felt like they it started off that she's just trying to make it in a man's world. See, it started she off to me to she was totally because Quark, Quark's a superstar. See, she to me Not, yeah. to me it started off she was in love with Quark and was throwing him the the peas thing because she was already in love with him. As far as uh, she should yeah, have been exactly. like, here's this peas. I'm going to be cutthroat about this deal I'm giving you about the peas because of that even that first rule of acquisition that they talk about in the show that free advice is seldom cheap. It should be, it shouldn't be cheap, but she's still giving that shit away. Like it should be like, yeah, it's not cheap. This is what I want. And then by end of act two of the episode is where she and Cork actually fall in love with each other or whatever. Not, but it's like already a foregone conclusion at the beginning, which is oh, oh, you have a little complication in that scene too, because that there's that scene where they're playing uh tango with, with, Nagus and she has an opportunity to take credit like she gets credit from Nagus where where uh Quark isn't yeah like yeah Quark. yeah and then she reaches out she, and she you could see it like her sort of grab the brass ring there you know right, right. and even like, if she still did you know, that you wait till that point to make her reach out and she's like what the fuck am I doing yeah. oh my god I'm in love with Quark yeah. that's a way to reveal yeah. it <laughs> but not from the whole googly eyes the whole time um I think you guys covered a lot of the ground of stuff that I hated in the actual episode, I'd probably find, figure out a way of getting rid of the gay panic. I think that if there's a problem between romance, it's the fact that they're co-workers, and that probably should be a, a rule. Like, not the fact that they're both male, but the fact that they're co-workers forbids them from being... Like, if that was the taboo... Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but that I don't, doesn't really fit into the existing story, but I think that would have been an interesting Well, are you saying that, like, it would be cool for Ferengis who are not business affiliates they could be gay together yeah like if that's Quark was like whoa yeah. we can't yeah, do why this not? because yeah. if, whoa whoa we can't do right, this because and you they're think not that a religious because, driven society right. why couldn't they be and gay? if all the female Ferengis are restricted to leaving they can't get away from Ferenginar why not have like a Spartan kind of relationship among the male Ferengis that go out in search of profit <laughs> they can't get you know if all the women are back in the house and they can't be seen mm-hmm. maybe the men when they're off on uh, throughout the galaxy make their own relationships because they don't have that recourse. Well, and I guess my thing, my whole thing is, is that you think for a minute there's going to be gay panic, but it's not gay panic. It's rules of acquisition panic. We're breaking a rule yeah. by being, being romantic. Right. Linked. Well, it's yeah. like, because we're for it, get and advice that's more fitting with their advice from a female is basically insider trading. Well, I, that that's it. Yeah, like that, yeah. because that's the way they are in Athens, right? Where or in ancient Athens, where they treated women like shit. Mm-hmm. They, they looked at them lowly, and basically just a bit. But everything else, all other life and pursuits, were to be spent with men, as including love and and sex. By and large, the women were just there to clean the house and to make babies that we could be another way that you could look at the Ferengis being so oppressive to women that could be a culture you would look at and then like this sort of spartan gay lifestyle would be kind of cool i don't i don't think 1993 was ready for that <laughs> they, they weren't ready for these things man they weren't ready well guys uh the imdb score you guys did you take a look you i did not spoiled it. for you 6.5 okay. who wants to guess 6.5 out of 10 for wade james where are you on this Actually, I think people like really key into the Dominion being mentioned. I'm going to say that was a, I was just about to say that I was actually going to bump it up a few points to six point eight because of that. Yeah, I was going to say six point seven is my my final answer. All right. Well, out of five hundred and sixty votes, which seems to be the average, yeah. uh, because the last week was five hundred and sixty-five. Melora was six point three out of ten. This week, the rules of acquisition, episode seven. Uh, 560 votes is 7.3. Fuck, man. So, so the Dominion force was strong. <laughs> yeah, right. The fact that it kicks off uh, what is going to be 
the overreaching storyline, I think, is one of the reasons why people. And I think people love the Quark shit. They guys. do, yeah, yeah. People love the the Zek. They love. It's, it's like it's not it's just like I Stephen Bear setting up five hundred po- profiles so that he can vote on it. So that's what we got from uh, IMDb. Yeah. Fuck so em. next week, uh, guys, uh, uh, look sharp. We got a Quark episode. Oh Jesus! Uh, yeah, Another. yeah, where he's uh, he's running a, a scheme. <laughs> Like, really? I, yeah, what? I don't know. It was it was poor planning. I don't I don't remember this episode, but it's, uh, it's like yeah, I feel like they log they lined. I'm gonna make a bold prediction, and I bet Odo has his eye on him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was this one written by Iris Stevens? I don't know. As well? All right. Well, well, everybody will have to tune in next week to find out. Yeah. All right. Three to beam out. All right. All right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Like I said at the top, that was our namesake episode, as we pointed out. Um, I One of the things I personally didn't re- remember, I didn't remember having such a strong feeling about the makeup in this episode. <laughs> I was Going back and listening to this podcast, I was kind of surprised at my own strong reaction. I don't ever remember having such a strong reaction about really any Star Trek makeup. It all seems sort of, um, the, the makeup artists on that show always seem sort of like hamstrung by like what's available. Clearly budget issues are always an issue. So I was kind of surprised to see myself, uh, upset to that degree about the, about the makeup. It is interesting though. Um, a couple production notes about the makeup makeup designer michael westmore based the facial art of the dosi on colorations found in the tribes of the borneo of the south seas um which okay well that kind of explains that i guess um michael pillar commented sometimes quote sometimes less is more one of the aliens looked like joe piscopo in a saturday night live skit the credibility is important. You had to swallow that to get to that episode. Uh, Memory Alpha says that the producers weren't entirely happy with how this episode turned out, calling it, quote, over the top and unsuitable. While writer Iris Stephen Bear says the tone was off in places, parts of the episode became a, a bedroom farce, and that's not how I'd envisioned it, end quote. So those are quotes from uh, Memory Alpha. You could always slide over there and, and have a look. I, I highly recommend it. Um, but all that said about how the aliens looked and how bad I thought they looked and how Michael Pillar thought they looked ridiculous, plot twist, this episode was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement and in Makeup for a Series. So what do I know? I guess in 1993, the makeup, the television makeup bar was was set a little low. All right, so, all right, what do I know? Moving on, uh, another thing somehow we brought up in, in this episode was Beastmaster, and uh, the lead for the the lead of Beastmaster is an actor named Mark Singer, and Mark is indeed. A, uh, he was born in Toronto but grew up in America. <laughs> Some fun facts about Mark Singer. Uh, let's see. He did, in fact, uh, he was a part of a, a Shakespearean company, uh, the American Conservatory Theater, that's right, and their production of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Uh, I couldn't see anything about the Twelfth Night of him being in but it he I could did find that he was in a production the American Conservatory Theater's production of The Taming of the Shrew so maybe that's what Wade was thinking about I don't know um but to me my uh favorite Mark Singer fact is that he voiced the character of Man Bat on Batman the animated series so and that marks I think another uh, voice actor from from Star Trek, the first being I believe the actor who plays Core, so played Mister Freeze, not Core. I don't know. One of the old Klingons did Mister Freeze's voice. That's now my memory's failing me. Um, my least favorite fact about Mark Singer, he is 
the first cousin of director Brian Singer. So that is something I did not know. And I'm sure we would have gone down a really weird rabbit hole had that been brought up on this episode of the Rules of Acquisition. Well, that's all I have for you this week. I really uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week's episode is is a is one that we all liked quite a bit. I think it's one of our all-time favorites. So be sure to come back and check out the remix for that as well. Uh, you can find us on Patreon at uh, Patreon backslash Kickers of Elves. And if that's wrong, please edit that out, Wade. <laughs> Um, also leave us a, a nice review on iTunes. We could always use that. So anyway, thanks again for listening. One to beam out. Did you know that some Deep Space Nine podcasts have more reviews than us on iTunes? Doesn't that piss you off? Please review us on iTunes. We need to feel loved sometimes. Please follow us on Twitter I want to hang out with those grease paint Tula Berry dealers with the chest muscles. They will joke with me about my powerful metal robot body and superior brain capacity, I will bust their balls about those stupid fucking red faces and with the, what Native American wore paint and swim caps. We will share a plate of nachos, a few beers, hit on some women. I have no idea where this is going. Why do I tell you these things?